This is the second class in a new series with Rabbi David Silver entitled King Solomon and His Demons. So let's get started. Rabbi Silver, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you very much, Nella. Um, okay, this evening we will focus on a passage from Vayikra Rabbah, not the Talmud Bavli. We'll get to Vayikra Rabbah later. A rather remarkable passage, and I don't know if we'll complete it all tonight. It's really something unusual. Let me just begin by just getting our bearings here in terms of Shlomo. So the point of last week where we looked at two, uh, two books of our, of our canon, Mulachim, and also Divrei Hayamim, and we noticed, without delving deeply into it, that the image that one gets of Shlomo in these two books is radically different. Diri Hayamim has Shlomo as essentially uh, a continuation of David in the most positive sense. They're both fundamentally involved with building the temple. And in the book of uh, Diri Hayamim, as we saw, David actually is involved in building the temple. David has all the blueprints. He's working hand in hand with Shlomo. Shlomo builds the physical building, but together they plan it, especially David. And not only that, in terms of sort of raising money for the project, which is always necessary, um, David gives the first big contribution. He has amassed his fortune, and he dedicates the money fundamentally for the purpose of building the, uh, the uh, temple. So, and in the book of Divrei Hayamim, David has many sons, as we know, but there's only one son who's ever being considered to succeed David, and that's Shlomo. And that's made explicit more than once in Divrei Hayami. That's the story that appears there. When you open up the book of Malachim, it's a very different story because in Malachim, uh, which is the first two chapters of Malachim are essentially a continuation of Shmuel, and we know that David has not just as many sons, but there are, there's a, there are conflicts between the sons. Four of his sons die, actually. And the last one to die is Adonia, who has declared himself king in the beginning of Malachim. And Natan Navi, the prophet Nathan and Bathsheba, together with the instigation of Natan, approached David, who is the old and feeble king, not clear how much David knows as to what's going on around him, and they persuade David to choose Shlomo as the king. So the way the book of Malachim begins, it's clear that, for whatever reason, David has no intention of declaring Shlomo king altogether. But he has to be persuaded or reminded that he once took an oath to Bathsheba Natan says to Bathsheba, go remind the king about the oath that he took. And the reader asks the question to herself, himself, was there ever such an oath in the first place? Which the answer is, we will never know. There may be, there may have been, there may not have been, but it is striking that if they don't intervene, Shlomo never becomes the king in the first place, for whatever reason. Secondly, the... Uh, bringing Shlomo on as king involves uh, a competition with his brother Adonia, whom Shlomo kills. Shlomo kills him because he suspects that Adonia, maybe correctly, 
still has eyes on the throne, even after Shlomo has been appointed king. Beyond that, David has a, as David is dying, he has sort of a last will and, and a testament, which he uh, tells, kind of, he instructs his son Shlomo what to do in the beginning of Malachim. And basically, apart from the formulae, keep the Torah and obey God, it's specifically about rewarding one person who helped David, uh, his children. And then it's about killing two people who David sees as dangerous. One is Yoav, David's right-hand general throughout his career, who saved David on more than one occasion. But he has a mind of his own. David's, for whatever reason, either revenge, because Yoav killed Absalom, and Shiri ben Gera, whom David swore not to harm, not to hurt, took an oath after David returned to Jerusalem after the Absalom rebellion, and David says, and both of those two people, uh, you're a smart fellow, Shlomo. You're a chacham. You're a smart fellow. You'll figure out how to do it. And uh, Shlomo does have them both killed. He has his right-hand man, his hitman, Benayal ben Yehoyada, who kills these two people. And then at the end of the second chapter, Shlomo assumes the throne. The, the kingship of David has been secured. So one could, one could not find two more different accounts of the uh, bringing Shlomo on as David's successor. Uh, the one in Divri Hayamim. Divri Hayamim in general uh, is a much less interesting book in the sense it doesn't have the dynamics of a book like Shmuel. Most books don't. Or even Malachim, the beginning of Malachim, which is seen as essentially a continuation of Shmuel. I'll get back to that in a minute. So my point is, before we start looking at rabbinic texts about Shlomo, we encounter Shlomo in the, in the Bible, and we have two radically different pictures of Shlomo. And I would add that in the book of Malachim, and we'll see this to some extent, though our focus will be the rabbinic texts, in the book of Malachim, Shlomo is a very complicated character. There's a big negative side to Shlomo, which of course the Gemara will seize upon, as it typically does, and will, you know, try to give Shlomo a, a more, try to, uh, you know, to, to enlarge this picture of Shlomo, give us more insight into both sides of Shlomo. Maybe, maybe we can figure out perhaps what they're getting at in some of these uh, Midrashim and rabbinic statements in the Talmud. But there are two things about Shlomo that I just want to mention before we begin our study of the rabbinic text. We'll come back to these things over and over again. But first of all, that Shlomo, at the end of his life, he has many wives. He has, in fact, a thousand wives, it says. One thousand wives. That's what it says. And at the end of his life, they, he too went to live above all. They caused his heart to stray. And he sounds like he actually builds altars in Jerusalem for foreign gods. We'll get to that. The Talmud discusses that. That's what it says he did. And the second thing he does, which the Gemara will, of course, pick up on, is that he amasses, apart from the thousand wives, he also amasses portions of money. And he also has stables of, uh, of uh, horses. So he has many wives, he has many horses, and he has a lot of money. Um, those three things, having the king having a lot of money, a lot of wives, and a lot of horses, 
That's what the Torah spells out in chapter 17 of Devarim when it talks about the king. The Torah doesn't say much about what a king does for a living, but it does say what the king should not do. Lo yarben. You shouldn't have too many. Not too many wives, nashim. Not too many horses. And not too much money. So Shlomo then has in fact violated precisely the three things the Torah says you should not do. Lo yarben. You shouldn't have too much. That's chapter 17 of Devarim. You know, the Bible critics think the same person wrote both. And there's a reason they may think that. Because whoever wrote it, it's clear that the book of Malachim has a chumash open. He violated this, he violated this, he violated that. But there's something else about Shlomo that's very important. And that is that the reason the Torah gives for not having too many horses is in order to bring in order to bring the people to, to Mitzrayim. The king is forbidden in the Torah in chapter 17 of Dvarim, the horses lead you back to Egypt. And you're not permitted, the king is not permitted to, to strengthen or to make perhaps even connections to Mitzrayim. That's what the Chumash says. Now, the reason for that, I believe, is that the king in the book of Dvarim, which I think is fundamentally a positive, although the Torah is aware of the dangers of kingship, but fundamentally it's a positive. And it's a positive in the sense that the, when you come into the land and you say you want to have a king, that's how that Pasha begins in chapter 17. So it's an expression of people's desire to be autonomous. I would say to take responsibility, which is fundamentally a good thing. The other side, the, other, the beginning of the story of the people of Israel in the Torah, of course, is the story of the descent down to Mitzrayim, where we are slaves. We have no choices. So kingship, in a certain sense, is presented in the Torah, and especially in the book of Tzvarim, as the end of the journey, the journey from slavery to freedom, the journey from being in a place where you can't make choices to a place where you can make choices. And of course, the danger is if you can make choices, you might make the bad, a bad choice. That's true. But kinship fundamentally, in the positive sense, is a reflection of human responsibility. So the worst thing the king could do would be to bring you back to Mitzrayim, to go back in time. That would be a mistake. All of this by way of introduction, these are very important uh, points about Shlomo in general, and we're coming back to them all the time. Because the Midrashim and the Gemaras, and this is a very important point, I want to just say this in terms of a methodology. You can study the various Midrashic works. Tonight we'll read a passage from Vayikra Rabba. I'll talk a little bit about Vayikra Rabba. It's a Medrash on the book of Vayikra. And people have, people have written about Vayikra Rabba, study Vayikra Rabba, all the Rabbas, the various Midrashic tracts. But what's important to understand this, and this is in the academic world, it's often forgotten. These works are not written in a, uh, in a, in a vacuum. Vayikra Rabba, Breshit Rabba. Breshit Rabba is connected to the book of Breshit. It's not that they got together and decided to write a book disregarding the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is right there. They may take it in different directions, 
but at the end of the day, they're still reading the book of Genesis. So these are not disembodied books. These are books that are connected. Vayikra Rabbah is related to the book of Vayikra. So the Midrashim, when you read these Midrashim, we, and they will do some rather ingenious things, we do have to think about the Torah text because at the end of the day, the, the Rabbas are essentially connected to the biblical text. So I just want to begin with the following observation. The book of Kings, and you have the handout last week, we made a bunch of chapters from Malachim. The first two chapters of Malachim, which conclude with David's kingship being established, because David's kingship is only established once the next king takes over. Until you have a second king, a successor, you have a first king, but you have no kingship. So through Shlomo, David's kingship is actually established. And David succeeds in establishing his kingship through Shlomo. Even the name Shlomo may be related to the word Shalom, but also may be related to the word Shalem, to be complete. So he's a completion and a culmination, a fulfillment, one might say, filling out of David's kingship. So the first two chapters end with the words, and the kingship was firmly established. The academics, or many of them, read the first two chapters of Kings as simply the culmination of the Book of Shmuel. They think the Book of Shmuel should end in chapter two of Kings. I'm not going to go there now, because I think there's a lot of truth to what they say. I also think that it's absolutely wrong, but, but that's another conversation. But there is the truth to it. I would say the Book of Samuel has two endings. One of it is where we ended, chapter 24, and the first two chapters of Kings logically a logical point, are a culmination of the story of David and kingship of Shmuel. Now let's take that as a given. So if the book of Shmuel ends at the end of chapter 2 of Kings, then the next, the book of Kings then begins in chapter 3, verse 1. So what is chapter 3, verse 1 of the book of Kings? Let me see if I, do I have this text in front of me? No? Let me see. So I don't have it. It real quick. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. I'll read it. I'll read it to you because I have my own little Bible there. So, uh, you, but everybody should have it. Last week we distributed all, all the um, the first eleven chapters of of, of Mulachim. You should have that. But I'll read you how chapter three, first number one begins, which I which, which I'm saying can be seen as chapter um, chapter uh, chapter one, verse one, because the first two ver- two chapters are the completion of David's kingship. Here's the first verse of chapter three. The translation I have, and you may have a different one that was distributed from Sepharia, but here they translate, Solomon allied himself by marriage with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He married Pharaoh's daughter. He brought it to the city of David to live there until he had finished building his palace, the house of God, and the walls around Jerusalem. That's the first verse. The first verse where we encounter Shlomo as king, not as taking over the kingship, not killing this one, killing that one. He's established the kingship. It's fully established. First verse, first words. He made a confederacy, a connection to power. What do the Chumash say about the king? What must the king not do 
as it says in the book of Devarim, Lo Yarbe, excess is no good, and especially the horses, to bring you back to Mitzrayim, you can't go back to Egypt. That's the absolute no-no. The king can't take you back to Mitzrayim. In the first verse, Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh, Paro's daughter. All this is, that's not the way the book of Chronicles tells its story. Maybe we'll get to that. That's the, the book of Kings tells its story. So that already, this is before you get to the request for wisdom, the building of the temple. In other words, one can read it to follow up what I said last week. That the way Shlomo becomes the king, that is, the first thing he does on his own, not instructed by his father, is to kill his brother. And his father says to him, listen, you might have some problems killing this one and killing that one and killing Shimmy because I swore not to do it. But you're a Chacham. You have Chachma. You have wisdom. You figure it out. But Chachma is the thing you need to build the temple, for which Shlomo is, is, is noted. So what, what does it mean to have a book? where well, the first time he employs Chachma is to kill people, given the fact that killing and temple in the Torah and beyond are mutually exclusive. So we have to wonder about that. I mentioned all of this as background to, you know, to the Midrashim and the Talmudic text that we'll be looking at starting very soon. But I did want to emphasize because what I'm emphasizing that chapter 3, verse 1 can be read as the academics read it, and I think correctly in a sense, even though there's a, there's a not correct piece to it as well. Can't discuss that now. But correctly, and if you read it that way, it means marriage to Pharaoh and his daughter is the first verse. And we know that first verses, that openings, that beginnings, that first impressions carry a lot of weight. It's not just another verse. It's the first verse. And that goes hand in hand with the idea of undercutting, that the book of Molachim, in a certain sense, is undercutting Shlomo, because one might say, you read that first verse, and you say to yourself, I wonder if this kingship is going to actually survive. It may survive many years, but in looking at it after the fact, which is what the book of Kings is about, it's looking at it from exile. How did we end up in this mess? A question I'm sure many of us have asked ourselves on different occasions in life. And you look back at time and you see things looking backwards. You see things that happened in the past that might have been otherwise. And that's the book of Kings. Someone's writing this book in exile. The book of Chronicles is not that way. The book of Chronicles, somebody is talking about return to Zion, the return to Zion. We don't have political power, but we can build a temple. Look at our past. Who were the builders of the temple? David and Solomon. Those are the heroes of the book. But in the book of Kings, it's about a different book. It's not about the temple. The temple is important, but it's about the kingship. It's about sovereignty in your land and about being exiled from the land. About a nation being divided in two. We'll get to that later on. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. After Shomo's death, the nation is divided. Why did this happen? How did it happen? That's what the Book of Kings is about. So that's my way of my introduction or continuation of last week. And I wanted this week to focus on one particular text, which is a text from Vayikra Rabba. But before I start with that, which I plan to do any moment now, 
Are there any comments or questions before we embark on the journey? If you haven't seen this particular text from Vayekul Rabba, hold on to your proverbial hats. It's, it's not quite amazing, actually. And, you know, it's... Anyway, anybody have any uh, comments or questions now? Yeah, a, a, question, a quick question. Did Melech David tell Shlomo to kill his other son? He told him? No, to he do? does not tell him that. He tells him to kill Shimei. He tells him to kill Yoav. He doesn't tell him to kill his son. That's what, since somebody brought up the Godfather last week, I made the point that if you saw the Godfather, the Godfather instructs his successor, his son Michael, he's telling him what to do. How to, to be, who's going to come after him? Who's, who's going to, and to kill them, basically. But he never mentions his son in law. He doesn't, he can't say, kill my, my, kill my daughter's son. Give or kill my daughter's husband. But, the, but Michael does. Father couldn't say it, you know, but so Shlomo, David's not going to say, kill my son. That's not David. David can't kill his sons. David pampers his sons. David spoils his sons, as the text explicitly says in the beginning of Barachim. He did can't tell any of his sons off. Not Amnon, not Avshalom, not Adonia, nobody. But Shlomo, that he, on his own, says father couldn't say it, whatever, but that's the first one that Shlomo kills, actually. David knew it. David never instructed him. Did David know it? He knew in the end. He no, knew? no, David doesn't. I don't think David. I don't think knows it. Happens. I think after David dies. Okay. I don't think David is aware of that. No. Okay. Any other comments? We'll begin now with not with Vayikra uh, Rabba. Okay, Vayikra Rabba is one of the older collections of medrash that we have. Uh, I'm not an expert on the historicity of the Medrash, but it's, I think, taken as a truism that of the Rabbas, which are older Midrashim, generally speaking, but they redacted at very different times. The oldest two of them are Reshit Rabba and Bayikra Rabba. By the way, the fact that they are, some are redacted much later, even in Bamidba Rabba, maybe in the 11th century, does not mean that the material in there is, is, is later. It can be redacted later, but some of the material can be earlier material. The same way the Book of Chronicles is written hundreds of years after Shmuel. It doesn't mean all of the material in Chronicles is a, is a later material than Shmuel. Now, I gave an example last week where it's actually probably earlier, but it's but it's, it's certainly written later and written at a certain time, etc. So this Vayikra Rabba is what they call a homiletic midrash. And it's, it's a teaching midrash. It's wants to instruct us about certain behaviors that are dangerous, inappropriate, sinful, or whatever. So this is, you have in your handout, this is Perik Yudbet, Simon Hay of Ayikra Rabba, Um Rabbi Yudin. Now the, the topic over here, the Perik Yudbet, I believe that's, this is the, Perik Yudbet has five Simon in like five little chapters. This is the last of the five. It begins in Vayikra, it's focusing in on the uh, God speaking to Aaron and saying to Aaron that the, the priest, Yair B'Shechar, wine or strong drink, should not be imbibed uh, by the priests when they come to do service in the temple. This is found, let's just, I'll just read it to you. I don't think we have a handout, but I'll tell you where it is. Um, this is right after the story of the death of Nadav and Abihu, Aaron's sons who died. 
when they came uh, close to God, they were com not commanded to do so. And a fire comes down and consumes them. And right after their death, uh, God speaks to Aaron. Unusual, God speaks to Aaron in chapter 10, in verse number 8 of Vayikra. Uh, do not drink any wine, you or your children, when you come to the tent of meeting, lest you die. And the next two verses are, to this, this is a law for all times. You must distinguish between sacred and profane. Between the pure and impure. And you must teach the Israelites all the laws, which God gave, spoke uh, to you through Moses. So this is a text which talks about the prohibition of the Kohanim to uh, have imbibed wine when they do service in the temple. It comes immediately for some reason after the death of Nadav and Abihu, and it ends with the verse, Lahorot that B'nai Israel, that you are commanded to teach the Israelites all the laws which God has imparted to them through Moshe. It sounds like the role of the priests in the Chumash. We have this elsewhere in the prophetic writings that the priests have an obligation to teach, not just to do service, but to teach. So this is the short little text that is, is the foundational text for chapter 12 of Yikra Rabbah. And now we will turn our attention uh, to this one text. We'll spend the remainder of the time on this one particular text. I'll read it here. We don't have it in translation, so I'll translate. Um, Rabbi Yudin. So we have a statement in the name of Rabbi Yudin. The seven years that Solomon took to build the temple, he never drank wine. Those years that he's uh, building the temple, he didn't drink wine. Shlomo took seven years to build the temple. We will get back to this some other week. Because he built two things. He built the temple and he built his palace. How many years did it take him to build the palace? 13. He's building for 20 years. Seven on the temple and 13 on his palaces. So we'll get to that. The Gemara sees that as a positive, actually. One might say he spent twice the time on his own house than he did on God's temple. But the Gemara twisted around to see that as a positive. We'll get to that. It's interesting in its own right. Anyway, those seven years that he builds the temple, he never drinks. But once he built it, so when he, when he finished the seven years of building, he married Pharaoh's daughter. That's the verse we saw. Chapter 3, verse 1. He married Pharaoh's daughter. In this Midrash, she has a name. Her name is Bitya. And that is also the name that the Medrash assigns to the woman who takes Moses out of the uh, on the side of the uh, like out of the reeds, out of the water, and uh, and ends up sort of adopting him, Pharaoh's daughter. Her name is Bitya. So the Medrash here, Batya, God's daughter. Over here, also the Medrash assigns the name to Pharaoh's daughter of Bitya. So he's got he's finished building the temple. It's all done, and tomorrow there's going to be a big celebration, the dedication of the temple, the opening of the temple gates. But he also was getting married that night. He gets married the night before the temple is supposed to open. That night he drank. 
That night, tomorrow morning, temple opens, everybody's invited. That night he drinks because there's a wedding party. Wedding party, married Pharaoh's daughter. Bozumot is like some kind of parties or maybe dances. There were two big dance. There were big dances going on that night. Achat There were people dancing around the city, so joyful that the Beit Hamikdash had been completed, the temple had been completed. And the other big party was Pharaoh's daughters getting married. Amr HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Shal Mi HaKabel, Shal Eilu or Shal Eilu. Mi HaKabel means, which one should I accept, means God, God is saying, says the Medrash. Which one is, which one is, is which one is, should I, should I, uh, should I, should I heed? Which one should I pay attention to? Which party? They're dancing around with great joy. Which one should come before me? At that time, God thought to destroy Jerusalem. As it is written, Yerimiel talks about the God's, God, God's anger, which, which would result in the destruction of Jerusalem. And now the, the Midrash is always digressing. It always comes back to the main point. Like someone who's walking through a place, a place of dirt, a place of sorry, soil place, so he sort of moves his nose to the side, he shouldn't smell it. So that's, that's what God was saying. God was Now, what, what is the point over here about this little story that the Medrash invents? It doesn't say this, but What's interesting is God is thinking to destroy Jerusalem. What do you mean, do you mean destroy Jerusalem? What is, Jerusalem is another word for the temple. Often the temple is called Jerusalem because, for example, eating the sacrificial foods is in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has the status of temple. Within the temple, there are different gradations. The mission speaks of 10 gradations of holiness in the temple. So the point over here is a simple one. The temple has not yet been dedicated. It's been built, but it hasn't been put in operation. And the Medrash sees God is contemplating its destruction before it's ever in operation, which of course dovetails with the point that we saw last week and even this week, that the very first verse, before you get to the temple, Solomon's going to build the temple in Kings. Chapter, whatever it is, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, chapter eight. But already in chapter 3, verse 1, which is the first verse, he marrying Pharaoh's daughter, which in a sense undercuts. The same way the Chachma used to kill undercuts the Chachma used to build the temple. The temple is built by the, through, through Chachma. Through, through Chachma, Bina, Dat, Tzalel, Machshob, Machshobo. But over here, the Chachma of Shlomo was first employed for killing, which contradicts, actually, which contradicts the temple. So God contemplates God contemplates. Amarabi Chunya. Shmonim mine rikudim. Rokta bat paro biota alayla. That night, Pharaoh's daughter had 80 kinds of dances. 80 different kinds of dances were going on that night. Where they, where they get the number 80 from is a good question. 
Maybe it's maybe connected to the verse in Shira Shivim. Talks about the wives. There were 80 concubines. Maybe it's related to that. In any event, she had 80 dances that night. And Shlomo, this big party, 80 dances, you know, so he went to sleep until four hours in the day. Four hours means a third of the day. So if the day starts at six in the morning, he goes to six. He's asleep at 10 o'clock in the morning. The Talmud in Mesechet Brachot talks about the time to say the Shema. The Shachach basically before sunrise. You can pray for three hours when kings get up. And the Talmud discusses when do, the, when do other kings get up. King David gets up at dawn or before dawn. But kings tend to be lazy or they tend to be spoiled. They get up late. Three hours, a quarter of the day. Shlomo sleeping on the day of the dedication of the temple. He sounds asleep at 10 o'clock. It's not like we get up like 8 or 9 in the morning. You know, they get up at 4.30 in the morning. So he's really sleeping. And the problem is, says the Medrash, so he's sleeping on a pillow. What's under his pillow? The keys to the temple. So they can't get in. Because this guy is sound asleep, having danced all night with Pharaoh's daughter. And uh, he can't open the door. That's what it says in the Mishnah, that the morning sacrifice came after four hours, 10 o'clock. So now we have a little story. At that point, his mother came in and rebuked him. His mother is Bathsheba. So Bathsheba walks into his bedroom, the guy's sound asleep, and she rebukes him. And others say, we have to, I would say, unpack this medrash next week as well, because there's so much here. Others say it wasn't his mother, or maybe not only his mother, it was also Yeruvam. Yeruvam ben Nevat is the, the king of the northern kingdom after the kingdom is split, after the death of Shlomo. Yeruvam ben Nevat in the Talmud is seen as a te- terrible sinner. He is a terrible sinner. Uh, he he builds his northern kingdom up. He, is, he has two golden calves. He's one of the kings that the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin has no share in the world to come. But over here, he comes in at this point and he rebukes Shlomo. We'll see all these things in, as we proceed through these texts. V'yachol, and it was correct. Hoya Rabbi Chagai B'Shem Rabbi Yitzvak Amad B'Kinez Elef Mitoch Shifto According to Rabbi Chagai, says the following, Yeruvim gathered a thousand people from his tribe. He's from the tribe of Yosef. And he, he, and he rebuked him. As it is written in Hosea, because the Medrash cites verses from all over the place, which have nothing to do with this, but they're citing the verse. Which means, and says the Medrash, when Yeruvam uh, uh, was 
here they another verse, another translation is when he when he took when he was spoken rebuked when he when he took God's side. Um, when he was zealous for God's, he was zealous for God. So either Yeravam or Bathsheba is rebuking Solomon, who sound asleep on the morning of the dedication of the holy temple, and the keys are under his head, having stayed up all night with Pharaoh's daughter. He said to Yeravam, said to Amalek Kadosh Baruch Hu, Amalek Kadosh Baruch Lama Atal Mochicha. God said to Yeravam, why are you rebuking this man? He is the king. Show some respect. I'm going to tell you, you Yeravam, I'm going to give you a taste of kingship and you're going to fail. We'll get back to Yeravam later because Yeravam is the main enemy of Shlomo. You're going to fail. Anyway, when Yeravam became the king, the verse that cited earlier, he, he sinned with Baal and, and he dies. In other words, Yeravam rebuked Shlomo for his failure, but he himself will be guilty of something similar. So God says to Yeravam, you have no right to rebuke Solomon. You're no better than he. And we'll, we'll come back to this theme later. In any event, this is a side point. But the rabbi said, It wasn't Yeravam who rebuked him. It was Bathsheba. And now they quote a different verse. You, you see the, the complexity of the Medrash, how they use the verses. What verse do they quote? They quote a verse from the book of Proverbs, chapter 31. How many people here have seen the book of Proverbs, chapter 31? I'll tell you how many. Almost everybody. everybody here. What? Eshet Yes, it's Eshet beginning in verse 9 or so, or 10. It's but the funny. first nine verses are a different business. Mm -hmm. And the Gemara now is going to go to town on the first nine verses. <laughs> in fact, the Gemara may even have in mind interpreting the first nine verses in light of Eshet because it's a woman giving rebuke to her son. The woman is Bathsheba. And the, all this is going to come together in the Medrash in amazing ways. But it's Bathsheba, Vada'i Imo Mokichato. Certainly it was his mother who, uh, who, who rebuked him. And now we have the verses in the book of Proverbs, which the which the Medrash, Rabba, interprets in light of the story. So it says in Mishra, you have the Mishra in front of you. You should have it with you. I, Made that photostat. Now, Mishlei chapter 31. Let me just find it in my translation. So, Mishlei chapter 31 begins These are the words of Lemuel, king of Masa, with which his mother admonished him. So, the Medrash, a different Medrash says that King Solomon has seven names. And three of them are, says clear, and four are less clear. The book of Proverbs is a book that is assigned to, to King Solomon, to Shlomo. Shlomo, the book of Proverbs is Solomon's book. But not every chapter in the book of Proverbs mentions Solomon. The last some chapters say these are the words of somebody else. For example, chapter 31. 
These are the words of Ramuel, the king of Massa, with which his mother admonished him, reprimanded him. But the Medrash sees Ramuel as actually another name of Solomon. So that's what the Medrash tells elsewhere. And this particular Medrash is going to tell the story over here, presumes that this is Solomon, presumes that the mother we're talking about is his mother Bathsheba. And now it's going to actually engage in interpretation of the first verses of chapter 31 and tie it in to its larger theme of these midrashim, which is about drinking wine, because that's what these are all about. And in particular, it presents Solomon as a kind of, as one who imbibes wine. Solomon is a big drinker. He didn't drink for seven years. He was on the wagon for seven years, but now when he finished the temple, he drinks a lot of wine. So now we have a interesting midrashic excursus about wine. So we have the following verse, Mabri umabar So here the translation is like, know my son, son of my womb, son of my vows. Barbri barbitni ubarnidri. That's the verse. My son, son of my womb, son of my neder, son of my vows. So now the Medrash will be cited by Vayikra Rabba, and they say the following. What does this mean? Amar Rabbo So Rabbo interprets this verse. Mabni doesn't say son, but ben. It says bri. Now bri is an equivalent to ben, but they're going to interpret bri as meaning something else. Mabri. All its words are bar, which means clear, like the like name Bruria, Baru or clear. In other words, woe my son, woe my son for not keeping in mind bar, not keeping in mind what it says in the Torah. Now this fits in with what I had mentioned earlier, that Shlomo is probably the only character that we can point to who explicitly and expressly violates exactly what the Torah says not to do. Don't have too many wives, don't have too much money, don't have too many horses, don't bring people back to Egypt. That's what the Torah says the king should not do. But Shlomo violates every one of those. So here the Medrash has Bathsheba complaining to her son, you have violated the Torah. But the violation of the Torah here is not directly selling out the horses and not the money and maybe the wives, but it's also the drinking. So the drinking here for the for the Medrash is, it may, may not be explicitly stated in the Torah, but it's implied by the Torah. And furthermore, she says, Umar bar Nidri, son of my vow. What does that mean, son of my vow? Amrale, she said to him, my son, your father had a lot of wives, King David, did many wives. And now we can quote a verse from Chronicles, not from Shmuel. Because in Shmuel, it never says he's going to be the king. But, but in Chronicles, chapter 22, it says that Natan said to David, His name will be Solomon. If I give birth to Solomon, he wasn't born yet. 
All the women took, took a vow. If I have Solomon, I'll bring many sacrifices to the temple. And I said, Batsheva, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm standing up, ready. I have my sacrifices. And you're sleeping? You're sleeping? And now they quote the next verse in in chapter in Mishlei, in the chapter of uh, in chapter thirty one of Mishlei, verse number three, give not your strength to women. So, in other words, the the, the medrash is darshaning. This is unbelievable, actually. That it's about Shlomo, who has given his strength to women, in particular one woman, though there are many other women. A thousand of them, but in particular Pharaoh's daughter. So the Medrash has combined the involvement with Pharaoh's daughter and the drinking and the partying. And here this fellow is sound asleep, the keys are under his pillow, under his head, literally. And his mother says, Listen, I have all my sacrifices to bring, they we've been waiting for to fulfill my vow. I prayed for you, my son, and you're sleeping, you're sound asleep. What is this? Your, your ways to those who would wipe out the kingship. And then she goes on. The, the generation of the flood, they uh, they were promiscuous. They were obliterated from the world. Don't be this way, my son. Ramoel was Solomon in the Medrash. Okay, so let's just stop here for a moment. The Gemara goes on here about the, the, the Gemara. The Medrash goes on, and we get continue with the Medrash. But let's just reflect upon what we have here, and then I'll stop and take some comments or questions. But what Ayikra Rabba is doing over the larger point of Ayikra Rabba, it's a warning about too much drinking. The, 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 the Medrash will end with the thought that wine sometimes can be a good thing, it can cheer you up. It has a positive side to it. But there's also a danger. And it connects it to Paro's daughter. In other words, what it's saying effectively is, in effect, it's saying the involvement with Paro's daughter, the marriage to Bad Paro, and the temple are mutually exclusive. That's what the Medrash is getting at. And the fact of the matter is, so when you read the book of Malachim, you do get that sense, especially since the Torah warns the king should not go back to Mitzrayim, but the Medrash takes beyond, way beyond this. It sees in Paro's daughter the impossibility of actually ever having the temple come to, come to fruition. Here's this fellow who was sleeping a third of the day away on the very time. You know, the temple service actually in the Mishnah starts before dawn. Starts before dawn. On Yom Kippur night, it starts at midnight. But generally, it starts before starts before sunrise. It starts even before dawn. And here's this guy who's sleeping to the fourth hour, Tamit Shoshachar. So that's the that's the Medrash over here. And it's very interesting, by the way, that there are two possible people rebuking Solomon. But one of them is Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is herself was depending how we read the Bathsheba story. She may simply be a victim. That's how I read it. 
but you could read the Bathsheba story a little differently, that she wasn't just a victim of David, but you could read her, I presume, as maybe a willing victim. But I don't read it that way, but you certainly could read it that way. And maybe the point of the Midrash is to dispel that idea, is to present her here as a moral person who understands the dangers of kings getting involved with women they shouldn't get involved with, having lived through that herself. So let me just stop here at this point and take comments or questions, and then I will continue. Uh, is it possible that the term Chelecha uh, is an allusion to Chel Paro, and um, that um, that's the Sutim uh, of the chariots of Paro? Certainly possible. It's certainly the case that it's interesting that actually, to follow up on your point, it, the, the verse in Malachim does not start with Pharaoh's daughter, it starts with Paro. So actually, your point is well taken, that the, it's the connection to Mitzrayim, as I said earlier, it's going back in time. And Mitzrayim for, the, for this Medrash comes with a, whole, with, a whole, with a whole culture. The culture of drinking, the culture of, culture of kind of hedonism. Um, and it's interest, and it's reading this into Shroma, which is very interesting. And let me just make a point about that, and then I'll take other comments or questions. Thank you for that comment. And you know, it's the, the Talmud will speak, we'll get to this, we'll see how much we can cover. But for example, the Talmud speaks about what happens when Tishabam falls on Sunday. So we know generally the meal before Tishabab is called Sudam Afseket. You have to have a very small meal. You can't have two, two things to eat. You still sit on the ground, eat an egg or whatever. But when Shabbat comes before Tisha B'Av, the Talmud says that doesn't apply. You can eat a big meal. And the example of a big meal they always give is Sudat Shlomo Bishato. Even a meal like, even what Solomon ate. And you have that expression several times in the Talmud of be a great meal, a festive meal, a gigantic meal. Sudat Shlomo. Here, in this Medrash, they're not talking about Solomon's big meals. They're talking about Solomon's drinking. And it strikes me, and maybe this is going too far with this, but the idea of Shlomo being David's son and the son, who, who, the, the son who's gluttonous and who drinks is exactly the Torah's definition of what we call Ben Soreo Moret. Zorel v'sorel, that the Talmud is not unaware of the negative possibilities. And let, me, let me just frame it a little differently. And that is, King Solomon has a thousand wives. They will, at the end of his days, lead him astray. That's explicit in the text. They lead him astray. We'll get maybe next week or in two weeks to the Talmud that talks about that. But when, he, well, when Solomon, before he builds the temple, he goes to a place called Gibbon, and the Book of Kings said, and Solomon brought a thousand sacrifices. Eliph Olot Yalesh Lomo, he brought a thousand sacrifices. And I guess what I think about is that you have the same man who brings a thousand sacrifices who has a thousand wives. So, what's, so this is a person who is, I would say, excess is the word. Now, the different kinds of excess, 
We understand that the thousand wives, foreign wives, are leading the spray is negative. But I would just ask the question, what about the thousand sacrifices? Because it's not, you know what I mean? It's, it's the same quality, actually. I guess the question is what you do with it. But the quality of excess, I think, perhaps what the Book of Malachim is saying is that quality of excess uh, is very dangerous because it easily can morph into something else. There were 80 dances that night. There were 80 dances that night. They did it, there's the 80 dances with Pharaoh's daughter, and there's the dancing in the streets of the temple, and God is listening to both dances and saying, which one should I be listening to? Which one is greater than the other? But the point, I think, of the Mulachim business is that this is a quality that Shlomo has, which is, which is problematic, quality of excess. And I think we can probably broaden that and think about this more, you know, much more broadly about people, everybody has certain qualities. And the question is, what do you do with them? But certain qualities, I think, are much more dangerous than others. And what you have with Shlomo, his temple is, is extraordinarily ornate. And I've always asked myself the question when I studied the Book of Kings about the ornate nature of Solomon's temple. What does the book think of that? What does the book think of that? Because we know that in the Torah, the Mishkan is very beautiful, but it's also very simple. It's a bunch of curtains. And it always struck me that the ideal temple is one of simplicity. It is beauty. There is beauty, but there's a simplicity to it. And when you come to Shlomo, it's not, it's, not, it's not simplicity. And at the end of the day, he does spend 13 years building his own house. He spent seven years on the temple and 13 years on his own house. The Gemara will try to spin that in a positive way, or some Gemara. But these are the things I think that the Midrashim are picking up on. They're trying to fully develop this picture of Shlomo, the positives and the negatives. And there are many positives, obviously. But he okay. has this story, which is remarkable. He's sleeping on the day that the keys are under his head. He can't open the door. He's sleeping on the keys. Who can make this stuff up? Yes. Uh, I, I just wondered, uh, I didn't understand the connection between the uncertainty uh, between the two, what seemed like equal things, uh, the, the dances for the, for the temple and the dances for the, for the bride, between that and the decision of God to destroy Jerusalem. Well, God it doesn't destroy Jerusalem. The point is that for the Medrash, but the point that I was making is that God is thinking to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the temple. Yeah, well, God is thinking to destroy the temple before the temple is ever built. And my point was that already in the way things get built, already in the way, I would say the larger point, the way the king, when you establish a kingship by killing your brother, whether justified or not, but you've established, you've killed your brother, okay? And that's the way you establish yourself as king. But the book of Kings is all about the dissolution of the kingship and the exile. And the defining moment in the book of Kings is when, this, is when the nation splits into two. When Joseph and Judah split, when you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So my point about, you know, the killing of the brother within the context of the book of Kings is, it's a symbol. It has a, a great, a deep symbolism that one might say the way we don't tend to think of things necessarily this way, but the way you get to where you want to go, the process of getting where you want to get to, 
we often discount the process. But I think what the Book of Kings and these Midrashim are focused in on is not just the end result, but often the way you get to the end result has all kinds of implications, if not in the immediate present, but for the future. And I think that's what this Medrash is, is interested in, among other things, apart from rounding out the character and something that we can all identify with, pieces of it, I'm sure, the pieces of this everybody has. Um, you know, the, 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 the different, how the different pieces come together is interesting. But, my, but the point I was pushing for is that even before we have a temple, the very way it's being set up, the very, the very, the very way it's set up and the way the kingship is set up already raises several red flags about whether this project is going to succeed. I mean, it might have succeeded if things happened along the way, but the, but, but the, the possibility of failure is there even before we built the temple. Now, that was my point last week about the Chachma. The very Chachma, you need to build the temple, but the first employing of Chachma is your Chachma, you figure out how to kill somebody that I swore not to kill. And that's how the Book of Kings, this is absent completely from the Book of Chronicles, of course, completely absent. But the Book of Kings is, has this as, as, as it's an important piece, and the Medrash is picking this up over here. I mean, what is, I think, one of the most striking Midrashim that we encounter? King Solomon sleeping on the keys, and his mother and Yeruvim come in to, 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 uh, to, to, to berate him, to admonish him. Let's let's just take a couple more minutes here, and I'll just want to finish up at least this thought. So Bathsheba comes into the two the two traditions over here. Um, two, two traditions: one is Bathsheba, and one is Yeruvim ben Nevat. Let me let me let me just conclude at this point. We'll continue next week with this. This medrash is a lot in it. But I want to make one point about Yeruvim ben Nevat, who is a critical figure in, uh, in the Solomon story, in the history of the Jewish people, the, 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 the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He's the one who is the central figure of the northern kingdom. And then he, he uh, builds the golden calves, and he's terribly negative, and uh, it sort of dooms uh, the northern kingdom. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, and we'll start with this next week, the Gemara in Sanhedrin talks about um, talks about the admonishing that Yeravim gave to Solomon. The Medrash here that we see in Vayikra Rabbah just says that Yeravim admonished Solomon, but doesn't say what he said. It just says he admonished him. It doesn't spell it out. But the Gemara in Sanhedrin that I gave out in the handout, and we'll start with next week, says what, what Yeruvim complained about. His complaint was valid, but he went about it the wrong way. That's what the, that, we'll get to that theme next week. That'll be next week's theme. His complaint was valid. And I'll just mention what it is now. We'll pick up next week with this thought. The verse in Malachim says that Yeruvim worked for Solomon. He was very important. He was in charge of the major building project for the temple. And it says that David had opened up the gates of Jerusalem. Solomon closed the gates of Jerusalem. David opened up the gates. Solomon closed the gates. Yeruvim ben Nevat comes in, Solomon sound asleep, you know, and he, he, and he, he rebukes Shlomo. He says to Shlomo, your father opened the gates so that all of Israel could come to the temple. 
on the, the, the yearly pilgrimages we take to the temple, on the three festivals, and even throughout the year, people could come. David wanted more and more people to come into the holy city of Jerusalem to sacrifice, to be there in God's presence, etc. But you closed up the gates, and the reason you closed up the gates, he says, is Lasot Angario Rabat Paro. You closed up the gates, Angari is a difficult word, to be in service to Pharaoh's daughter. Now, what exactly that means is a good question. To be in service to Pharaoh's daughter, maybe it means you don't want anybody to leave. You want people to come, and when they're in the city, you're going to use them in the employ, in the service of the daughter of Paro. So what's interesting is, and we'll start with this next week, the Talmud in Sanhedrin, and you have a photostat, says that that, that uh, rebuke of Shlomo was correct. But the way he went about it was incorrect. It was a kind of insolence, etc. But I did want to pick up uh, next week with that idea of Yeravam ben Nevat. Yeravam ben Nevat says the Mishnah in that chapter, the last chapter of Sanhedrin, has no portion to the world to come because he was a sinner and he caused others to sin. And he is the great enemy of Shlomo. He's Solomon's enemy. He is Solomon's Satan. The name of this, these classes are called Solomon and his demons. Now, the reason for that is because the main rabbinic text about Shlomo, and we'll study in a couple of weeks, is about Shlomo and Ashmodai, the king of the demons. It's a very famous story. And the one thing about the Talmud Bavli, it pulls no punches. I mean, it's, well, we'll see. It's, I, I find it quite amazing. And a lot of open questions. We'll have an opportunity to think about it together and to make suggestions. That's why I call it Solomon and his demons. But the term Satan appears in the Shlomo episode more than once. I think it's three different times. Different people are a Satan for Shlomo. So I wanted to talk about that, Solomon's demons, but in particular, Yeravah ben Nevat. Yeravah ben Nevat, when you think about sinners, he's the great sinner. He sins and causes, causes others to sin. But the Bavli, I think, raises another possibility not to not to present Yeravam in a good light. What the Bavli is interested in is, I think, among other things, what is the difference between Shlomo on one end and Yeravam on the other? There is a difference, but what exactly is the difference? So maybe next week we'll start with that. Now, if there are any comments or questions, I'll take them now and then we'll continue next week. Just we'll finish up next week with this Bayikurabah. Then we'll jump to the Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Gemara in Shabbat. And afterwards, we'll go to the, the story of, the, of, the, of the, the king of the demons in Shrubo. But does anybody have comments or questions? If you want to, my email is dsober at risha.org. So you can always send me an email with any questions or comments you may have. I welcome them. I'll try to respond. I, I have a comment, Rabbi. Yes. Um, I think it's so fascinating that Shlomo went to bed that night with the keys to the temple under his pillow. Right. You would think that it would have been handed over to the Kohanim. They could get up, get everything ready. And then, you know, the king and his mom and his new bride could all, you know, swan into the place with and be the first ones to offer their sacrifices. And all the other people have got everything ready for him. It, it, you know, it, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the following thought, which is when the temple is dedicated, we have the prayer of Solomon. 
which is an amazing prayer, by the way. It is beyond belief amazing. He is the wisest of all people. He's very smart. He understands part of what the Gemara is interested in. How could such a smart guy do such stupid things? That the Gemara is interested in that. Okay, we'll get to that. For many of us, that's not even a question because we've seen this all the time. But, but, but uh, you know, I've done a lot of dumb things myself, many. And the point is, you know, so people can be smart in one way and very not smart in another. Sometimes there's a complete disconnect. But the prayer of Solomon is one of the great prayers that we have. Uh, he actually redefines the temple. It's an amazing prayer. We'll spend some time on that. It's not our main focus. But there is something else about Solomon's prayer, which is it's an incredibly long prayer. There's something about the prayer. In other words, this is the guy who takes up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. So therefore, having the keys, you know, you say to yourself, well, give someone the keys. Why do you have the keys to the temple? You know what I mean? But we will see that. And actually, as since you mentioned that, I want to mention something else. There's another very important uh, Midrashic statement, that will, a Gothic statement in the Talmud that we will study about opening the gates of the temple. We will get to that. I don't want to give the whole course away, you know what I mean? But Solomon can't open the gates. That's a different, very famous medrash. The gates won't open for him. That's another medrash. So we'll see. Uh, okay, so we'll stop at this point then. And, uh, yes, I am, yeah. Uh, one other thing. Um, just um, in the continuation of chapter 31 in Mishle, uh, Pasuk Vav, it says, Biyayin um, Mare Nefesh. So he's drinking Mare Nefesh, whatever Mare Nefesh means, but it's an implication of some, I, I don't know if it's alluding to Kohelet and Havel Havalim or to Mare Nefesh about whatever. Uh, about the kingship or about Yerevan, I'm not sure, but uh, it's striking to me that it's uh, he's drinking not just to have a good time, but to uh, to uh, squelch whatever uh, Mare Nefesh he has. The other point is the the. Well, I would say let me just respond to that point that the Talmud talks about. We don't do this, but the Talmud talks about a person who is an Avil, actually that they would give the Avil a lot to drink. So over here, it probably refers to that. In other words, the verse is understood, I think, to mean you shouldn't be drinking wine. Give the wine to those people that are embittered, that are mourners. Because the mourners yeah. in the Talmud drink wine. Oh, Tanusha, not oh, you. Oh, 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 you right. That's how the Talmud I, understands it. I misread that. Whether, okay. okay, but whether, yes. whether there's a piece of it that's that way, I don't know. But that's okay. how it's understood. You shouldn't I drink. Mean. And for, and for another reason, because you have to judge. And remember that the verse that leads in is the whole road that B'nai Israel to the priests and also judges. A judge is not allowed to drink. So therefore, the Medrash is seizing on this. It's actually a brilliant Medrash. It seizes on this from all the standpoints. It's bad for kings and it's bad for judges, but it's good for those people in distress. That's what they thought. Okay. And Pasuk uh, Tet is Petak Picha Shvat Tzedek so it's referring again to his closing the gates and not letting the poor people uh, into Jerusalem, that whoever it is is rebuking him, rebu rebuking him whether it's Bacheva or Yeravam, it's that he is setting up a kind of a hierarchy 
and he's not involved in uh, caring about the poor and and Sedek and Mishpat. Could be. He hangs around with, 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 with he hangs around with so-called royalty. And that's your job is not to hang around with royalty. Forget Pharaoh's daughter. You know, you have to your job is to take care of the simple people, which which he does on other occasions, but that is part of the rebuke. So the, the Medrash is seizing verses in the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, the first nine verses, darshaning them, connecting it to wine, connecting Shlomo to wine, connecting Shlomo to Pharaoh's daughter, which is about promiscuity, but it may be also drinking and eating, which is a kind of gluttony. So they paint this pretty elaborate picture using a variety of texts. And but fundamentally coming back to the basic story of the Solomon of the Book of Kings and the, this co- this complex character, this person of excess, etc. But it also has the positive side, it's devotion to God that we'll see as well. So we'll pick when, up next week. With the, yes. When you just said the thing about the gates don't open, I know you're speaking for the future. You're talking about the Beit Hamikdash, not the Seusher Arim Midrash. Seusher Arim, exactly. You are talking about the Medrash. I know, but he's still on the ground. He's still on the ground. Don't we want to find out? When he goes into the temple, he commands the gates to open. They won't open. We'll get to that to come up. That was when he's alive or later? Shlomo's alive. Yes. They open for David who died. They won't open for Shlomo. We'll see the Right. Something else. They don't open. But it's the same thing with the keys. He may have the keys, but the the lock's not working for him. It won't open. (laughs) In fact, they try to. In fact, according to the measures, they actually try to kill him. They wow. chase after him. They're going to kill him because right. they think he's talking about himself. The Yavo Melech Right. They, which which Melech do you have in mind? Right. <laughs> right. I didn't make this up. The Gemara says it. You know. Okay, we'll continue next week. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you to Rabbi Silver for thank you very much and everyone else who joined us today on Zoom, on Drisha Live, and on Facebook. If you just can't get enough, Drisha has more classes tomorrow, Sunday, Monday, throughout the week, and you can find out more and register for them at drisha.org slash classes. Thank you again to Rabbi Silver and for all of our wonderful participants. Everyone be well, and we hope to see you soon.